feminist. Hello, and welcome to Dare to Use the F Word. I'm Rebecca Lee Douglas, and I'm here today with BCRW research assistant, Nietzsche Yin. Dare to Use the Effort is a production of Barnard College, the Liberal Arts College for Women in New York City, and the Barnard Center for Research on Women. This podcast brings you stories about how millennials are taking on feminist ideas and making them their own. We have a really great show for you today, but before we go any further, Nietzsche, can you introduce yourself? Sure. Um, I am a first semester senior at Barnard, majoring in art history and visual arts and gender studies. It is my second year with the BCRW, so I'm really excited to be working on this podcast. So a few weeks ago, Nietzsche and I were invited to Pulitzer Prize-winning author Anna Quinlan's home in Upper Manhattan. We thought it would be really great to bring Anna together with feminist blogger Julie Zeilinger, who's going to be a junior here at Barnard next year. So Nietzsche, you've worked with Julie before. Um, Can you describe who she is? I met Julie last year when we both worked as research assistants at the Barnard Center for Research on Women. So when Julie was in high school, she started an amazing submission-based blog for teen feminists called The F-Bomb, where young people can write in and tell their stories and be heard. And she also recently wrote A Little F'd Up, Why Feminism is Not a Dirty Word, which is a book about feminism for young women in their teens and 20s. Anna Quinlan is this renowned feminist, but she's also written and spoken about millennial feminism, and she's referred to millennial women as, quote, the coolest, most capable, most together women ever, which, by the way, is a really great description of both Anna and Julie. And so we brought Anna and Julie into a room together to talk about the evolution of millennial feminism. Anna speaks first. I'm Barnard class of 74, so if you do the math, you'll realize I grew up pre-feminist. I was born in 1952, and one of the other things that I think made me feminist was the sense growing up that there were only two lines of work open to me. One was to be the mother of many children, and the other was to be a Roman Catholic nun, since I'm a Catholic girl. Neither one seemed particularly (laughs) suited for my skill set. I think that I experienced, without actually being able to say it, an incredible level of frustration about my future prospects, which was mitigated somewhat by the work of a Louisa May Alcott and Maud Hart Lovelace, both of whom wrote about young women who wanted to and then became writers. And of course, I am a writer. I'm a novelist. I'm a nonfiction writer. For many years, I worked at the New York Times, where I ended my career as an op-ed page columnist. And I was also a columnist at Newsweek. And because I was frequently the only woman doing that at those particular places, and the only woman in a a visible position at some publications, I wound up writing disproportionately about women's issues in general and feminist issues specifically. So to start, I just wanted you to recall the first time that you realized that you were a feminist and what it meant to you at that point in time. I actually don't know that there was a single defining moment. I always say I found out about feminism through the issue of female feticide and infanticide and just realizing that something so misogynistic and violent was happening was sort of an awakening for me and really implored me to find out more about the feminist cause about women all over the world. But in terms of calling myself a feminist, I think it was really more a gradual realization that this was a word that defined things I already believed in. I wish I could say I came to feminism altruistically, but I did not. I realized I was a feminist in history class my junior year in high school. I am pretty sure 
I was the smartest person in that <laughs> class, or at least one of the smartest. And I had a history teacher who was really smart and really good, but who seemed to not take female students very seriously. And, you know, here I was, somebody who was very social and cheerleading and homecoming court and this and that. I was no one's idea of a radical. But from a purely self-interested point of view, I began to think that I was always going to get less because I was a female. And almost without knowing it, this rage started to build in me. But in the beginning, that rage completely came from a place of self-interest. Do you remember how that teacher was behaving towards you that inspired that rage? I think one of the things that's so interesting and so mysterious about people not taking you seriously as a woman is that frequently it's not writ large. It's in tiny little gestures or tone of voice and one of the things that enables the person to do if confronted is to say, I, I don't know what you're talking about. I was just making a joke or I don't know what you mean about my tone. We were all in love when I was growing up in feminism in the early 70s with the really big bad stuff. You know, Sandra Day O'Connor is second in her class at Stanford Law School, goes to interview at law firms, and they say to her, we will never hire a woman lawyer. That makes it pretty easy. I mean, that's pretty simple kind of basic sexism. I think the problem is that m what most of us face most often is really nuanced stuff. And, and I can't remember anything specifically that that teacher said. All I know is that for the first time in my life, I thought I wasn't going to be taken seriously because I was a woman. And as somebody who'd sort of been raised by her father as her father's oldest son, I was really unaccustomed to that feeling. And it really, it drove me then and it's driven me ever since, but on a more altruistic level now. It's an interesting point. Like I always say for our generation, feminism is a much more subtle fight, especially because second wave feminists made so many concrete victories in like, economic policies and legal policies. And for us, it really is the daily things, the, the little things that sometimes we can't put our finger on. Like I've talked to so many young women my age who don't realize that sexual harassment is what it is. They think maybe they imagined it, like it makes them uncomfortable, but they're not able to identify it as a feminist issue or as sexism itself. So I, I think that that's incredibly relevant for our generation. So Anna, you say that you were born pre-feminism, and now you're living at a time when millennial feminism is the norm. I know that this is sort of a complicated question, but how have you seen feminism shift and change during your lifetime, and how has your feminism um, changed with, with it? I mean, you go from no women permitted to go to law school to only 5% of the class at the law school can be female to now 50% can be female, and yet somehow the partners at major law firms who are female only occupy 15% of the masthead. So what's the deal here? Um, where are we? And I think where we are is in the midst of a lot of unfinished business. I think we still have a lot of older men running institutions who 
are not bad guys, but they tend to hire and promote and mentor those who remind them of themselves when young, i.e. other white men. And, and then we also have a moment when we're looking at the institutions of society and men and women are bringing very different attitudes towards them. I don't know about all women, but I've looked at certain of the jobs that my male counterparts have, which require the 90-hour week, and God bless them, I don't want those jobs. I want to have really satisfying work, and I want to have a really satisfying life, and I think of those two things as different. And perhaps because we haven't been an entrenched part of the professional world for millennia, women, I think, feel freer to question it, to question how things are run and uh, whether we want them to be run that way, and short-term, whether we want to be part of the agenda. But having said that, I I mean, I think things have changed so much that it makes my head spin. Um, (laughs) You know, when I was 18 years old, I couldn't have imagined Hillary Clinton. Um, When I was 18 years old, I couldn't have imagined 20 female senators. And I hope when I'm 80 years old, it will be incredible to me that there were ever 20 as opposed to 50, as there ought to be. I think it behooves us to remember that the world has changed in some ways radically in a relatively short period of time. It also behooves us to remember that when we say that, it in no way, shape, or form means that we think the work is done or even close to being done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so much of what feminism is to the millennial generation is sort of negotiating how much change we have accomplished and sort of Um, acquiring that legacy in a way. I think a lot of what we have to focus on is how do we allow society to catch up to the economic and legal progress that we have made. And I think because of that, feminism often tends to be a much more personal and, as we said, nuanced experience. And I think also, whereas feminism in the 70s may have been more of a concrete social movement, it really has um, dissipated into our individual lives in a social experience. I think there are two ways to make social change. One is the way we did it in the 70s, where there were marches, where there were court cases, where there was pushback against organizations and structures and so on and so forth, and it was quite successful. But the other way is to change people from the ground up, and I think I'm keenly aware of that because I'm the mother of two sons and a daughter. And one of the things that is important for us to keep front and center is that feminism has been fantastic for men. Just fantastic for them. To the extent that men are now more involved in raising their own children, that is nothing but a good thing. And to the extent that in this uh, economic atmosphere, men don't have to be the only ones paying the bills and keeping their families afloat, that is nothing but a good thing. And to the extent that in organizations we bring if this is the case, consensus and communitarianism um, to the table, that's nothing but a good thing for our Mm -hmm. male counterparts. So I think one of the things um, that gets bent when we tell the story of feminism is that this is a movement by women for women. Mm -hmm. This is a movement that started out as being by women 
for everyone. And that's exactly what it's been. It's made everything better for everybody. So Julie, that reminds me of a lot of what you discuss in your book and how that applies to the millennial generation. Can you explain your perspective on what it means to be a feminist in the millennial generation? And I I know that you write about how it's not just about women, it's about gender, it's about sexuality, it's about embracing different types of people and different ideas. Yeah, I definitely think feminism has become about intersectionality, which Kimberly Williams Crenshaw, who's actually a Columbia professor, sort of coined that term, meaning that it's about the intersection of, as you said, sexuality, race, class. It's it's all of these things. I think feminism truly is the fight for all kinds of social justice, social and economic justice. And I think that millennial feminists are really dedicated to, dedicated to that. I think we've seen previous generations of feminism have a more exclusionary tone. And I think that we're learning from that. And, and I think older feminists actually are learning as well. I hate to talk about the wave model as if second wave feminists don't exist anymore, or aren't relevant. I think that a lot of second wave feminists are incredibly involved and that they still influence millennial women. I know that a lot of my mentors are second wave feminists and I think that we're learning from them in real time, not just from their past mistakes or their gains. But yeah, and I think it's, it's very important to emphasize the role that men play in feminism. Um, through my work at the F-Bomb, I've had the pleasure of publishing the work of a lot of male feminists, and it's so inspiring to see them write about how they want to take part in this movement and how this movement can really benefit them, which is something that I think gets excluded from the conversation a little too often. And another really important part of millennial feminism is our activity online. It's a source of a community. I really think it's where the future of feminism is headed in a lot of ways. And there are definitely criticisms about it. I think a lot of people see it as decentralized. They don't understand that there can be activism online. It doesn't always have to happen on the ground and we're able to make real change through social media. There are a lot of campaigns through social media that target huge corporations if they have offensive ads or offensive products. People are able to use Twitter, for example, and start hashtag campaigns and really have themselves be heard. And I think there are still issues with it. I think that there definitely some people are heard more than others, but I think we're moving in the right direction because of it. And as I've experienced, it's an incredible way to form a community in incredibly vast numbers. You're able to garner more support on a blog than I think you really ever could find in a single consciousness raising group or a single protest. So I think there are a lot of advantages. We still have a lot of improvements to do in terms of diversity. There are a lot of voices that are out there, but again, as I said, certain ones tend to be heard over others. In-person activism is also very important that we have to supplement our online activism with on-the-ground efforts. And I think Slut Walk was actually a great example of that, which was, for those who don't know, a movement um, based on some slut-shaming comments, some um, comments made about rape culture, and was our generation largely our response to that. And it started online. It was through social media and blogging, and I'm sure many emails sent back and forth that that on-the-ground on activism was made possible. So I think that we're able to do both, but... I really do see the future of millennial feminism being online. Do you really think that among younger feminists we're broadening the reach? Because mm -hmm. I worry that even after all these years, we still feel like a movement that's for prosperous p women mm -hmm. by prosperous women. And that we spend so much time talking about, you know, electing women to high mm -hmm. office and getting women into executive suites 
that it it still sounds as though we don't care that there are millions of women who can't feed their kids. Yeah. No, I definitely think it's still a very real issue for our generation. We're definitely working on it. And one thing that I tend to be concerned about for our generation is when we do try to make efforts at diversity, especially when we're putting together panels, something I've noticed is that there's a lot of tokenism still. I feel like we haven't reached true diversity in that sense, where if we are trying to include women of color, I've been on panels where there'll be one person of color on the panel. We really need to examine that. But I think that the blogosphere gives that opportunity for those voices to be heard. I don't necessarily think we're there yet, but I think that this is probably one of the better methods we could have come up with to make it happen eventually and to work on it now. Do you think that millennials see themselves as an extension of the third wave uh, generation? Or do you think they see their feminism as a separate thing entirely? More and more recently, it's becoming a second thing. I think we're just hesitant to categorize ourselves as the fourth wave, because I think a lot of people our age kind of have an issue with the wave model. Feminism is generally becoming a part of our lifestyle. I think it's a much more individualized pursuit and I think while we're willing to claim the word feminist, again, I, th- I, think, I think it's something that we do in our daily lives. I know a lot of people who read feminist blogs but don't really subscribe to any individual one, aren't really part of a specific organization, but it's just another aspect of their identity. We sort of shy away from all categorizing ourselves as the same thing because in a sense it's more casual. And I don't think our commitment is more casual, but just the way we see it within our identity. I don't think it has to be all consuming in the same way. Do you think that it's necessary for people today to identify as feminist, or is it okay if they don't use that word and just share those ideals? Yeah, I think the most important thing is to subscribe to feminist ideology and to sort of support the causes that feminism promotes. That being said, I do think it is important to identify as a feminist just to keep this movement a little more cohesive. Like, I think that it is a great thing that it's a little more decentralized in the sense that I think that that's the best way for more voices to be heard. It opens it up to a vast number of people that it couldn't in a way that it was just, that it would be like a social movement of the 1970s. It's just a very different movement. But I do think it is important to identify as a feminist just to keep the movement together. As a writer, I've decided that I want to take back the word. Hmm. For a long time, I used to say, I don't care what you call it as long as you do it. But now I feel as though if our enemies get to dictate how we feel about the nomenclature, then in some sense they win. Hmm. It reminds me a little bit about how I'm supposed to call myself a progressive now. Instead of a liberal. Yes, instead of a liberal. Um, Well, you know what? I'm a liberal. I'm proud to be a liberal. I feel like liberals made this country great. Um, And I'm going to keep on calling myself a liberal and not give it up just because the people who run Fox News decided to try to make it into a dirty word. Mm -hmm. And I feel the same way about feminism. You know, I just read reread that quote from Marissa Mayer, the CEO of Yahoo, who says that she doesn't think of herself as a feminist, feminist, even though she believes in equal rights for women, to which I want to say, huh? And then she goes on to say that she feels like feminists have a chip on their shoulder, you know, yeah. and and every time I go to a college campus, I just get behind that podium and I say, my name is Anna Quinlan and I'm a feminist. And most of what you've heard about feminists is big lies, mm-hmm. and I'm just here to tell you the truth. 
Anna, I have this really great quote from Good Morning America in 2010 where you said to Lee Woodruff, and I'm going to read the quote, um, I I don't want to hear anyone talk about how young women today aren't this or that. Millennial women are the coolest, most capable, most together women ever. What prompted you to say this and why are millennial women so cool? I'm a huge fan of the millennial generation. I'm really tired of hearing people slag them off. The data shows that they've been the most philanthropic um, generation in terms of their time, of any generation in American history, in terms of doing public service. One of the hardest programs in the world to get into right now is a program where you graduate from a great college and then go to teach in an underserved area of the country. That is Teach for America. You know, people weren't doing that when I graduated from college. So I just think as a generation, they're fantastic. And they're also looking for balance in a way that my generation was not, and which I think is so praiseworthy. Both the men and the women are looking for balance. But when I talk to millennial women, most of them have such a kick-ass attitude. I mean, they're just... They're just full of themselves in the best way. They have all of these choices, and I know they're incredibly confusing, and I know they're under such pressure to look a certain way and live a certain way and be a certain way, but they seem to just be out there in a way that my generation was not. I mean, we were still living some of the housewife mythology of the 50s and 60s, and Casting it off meant that sometimes we went from from the thesis to the antithesis. Neither place is the best place to be, and I meet a lot more young feminists who are in this synthesis place. So that there's a, this kind of um, buffet aspect to their lives now. You get a little of this, a little of that, a little of the other thing that I love, that I admire, and that in a small way I kind of envy mm -hmm. because it wasn't where things were at when I was in my 20s. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you. As, as a <laughs> member of my generation, I thank you. Mm -hmm. um, but I definitely agree. I think my generation is looking for this sort of fluidity that wasn't really possible for any previous generation. And we have a lot to owe to our mothers and grandmothers and fathers and grandfathers for that. Maybe this is something that every generation says, and I'm too young to understand that, but I really do feel like we were born into this climate of chaos, in a sense. We've grown up with rhetoric about global warming. We, we grew up some, our generation, we're different ages, but I think the issue of 9-11 and sort of the constant threat of terrorist attacks has really shaped who we are. I think we've entered this environment where it almost doesn't seem like there's another choice than to try to fix the things around us that seem so broken. And I think that's hugely defining for our generation and a big impetus behind why we constantly feel like we need to act. Of course, that's a huge generalization. I don't think our entire generation is like that, but I think it's definitely a pervasive ideology for us. Both of you are Barnard women. Anna, you graduated in 74. Julie, you're going to be a junior here next year. How has your experience at Barnard or how did your experience at Barnard shape your feminist views um, or how have you been involved in the feminist community at Barnard? Uh, I don't think I would say I was involved in a feminist community at Barnard. There were a lot of litmus tests when I was in college. There was a lot of feeling that 
more conventional young women couldn't, by definition, be feminist, that, that to be feminist meant to be radical. Sometimes it to be feminist meant to be lesbian. I wasn't a radical. I'm hetero. And so to some extent, I think I felt disinvited from the party. At the same time that I would say that my years at Barnard made me emerge thinking unequivocally that I was a feminist. And part of that was because of the women who surrounded me. I mean, the idea of looking around a seminar table at Barnard and saying, oh, women aren't capable of this or that is on its face absurd. And that's really what I came away from. On the one hand, I wasn't terribly happy during my years at Barnard, in part because of, of feeling a little bit like, you know, I was the um, crew neck sweater girl in a, in a tie-dye world. At the same time, it, it changed me utterly, and all for the better, um, in ways that have paid off over and over and over again in my life since. I'm still trying to figure out what feminism is like at Barnard because I am in the midst of it, but I think it's a really unique experience, and this could be true of all women's colleges in general, but what I found my freshman year was as a self-identified feminist, I expected to go there and just be surrounded by feminists, and it would be a feminist utopia, and everyone would discuss all of the feminism all the time. But the thing that I found was actually... I think in part because of Barnard's relationship with Columbia, there was a lot of resistance at first. And a lot of young women sort of stepped back from it and, and felt that they needed to distance themselves, um, especially because at Barnard, feminism is completely seeped in the ideology of the school. It's, it's in every class. It's in the things that we read. It's, it's simply everywhere. So I think at first there tends to be a little bit of resistance. But what I'm finding, that goes away. And I think young women come to really embrace it. And it's really, it is an incredible place to be a feminist. Most of my involvement has been through the BCRW, which is just an incredible resource. They bring amazing speakers. They really try to involve students in the work that they do, which is nationally renowned. Um, it, it's really just an incredibly wel welcoming place for feminist thought, and I'm so thankful for that. I want to end with your go-to response when people ask you why we still need feminism today. What I get asked more often when I say that it's judging people based on their abilities rather than their gender is, well, wait, isn't that humanism? Mm -hmm. And what I always respond is, when we have a level playing field, it will be humanism. But unfortunately, I feel like we're a long way from a level playing field. Yeah, I totally agree. When I get that question, actually, you'd think I'd have like a stock response at this point, but I really don't, mostly because I'm so seeped in it that sometimes it's just shocking to me that people don't understand feminism. But I think, especially for our generation, it depends on lo a lot on context, because you, especially with other young women, there are a lot who simply do not understand what feminism is. They really haven't been exposed to it. And in that situation, it's, it's a teaching opportunity. I try to explain why I call myself a feminist, what this movement is really about. But then, on the other hand, I think there are a lot of people who come from a place of immense privilege who feel that they don't need feminism because personally they may not have experienced inequality. And in that instance, it's really about trying to help them move past themselves and their own worldview and say, there are a lot of people in this world experiencing a lot of different kinds of oppression, and we really need to be sensitive to that and open to that. Even if you feel this isn't a movement that can benefit you, 
it's really about understanding what's happening in the world as well. Well, Anna, thank you so much for letting us into your home. Julie, thank you for coming here today. And thank you both for being a part of Dare to Use the F Word. Thank you so much. Ah, the F word. (laughs) (laughs) We're out of time for today, but thank you to everyone who helped put the show together. A special thanks to this month's guests, Anna Quinlan and Julie Zeilinger. Thanks to Nietzsche Yin for co-hosting. And a special thanks to Sarah Dooley, who composed the podcast song. We'll be back next month, but for now, we'll just leave you with a dare. Use the F word. F is for feminist. <laughs>